good to be here with everyone this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22, that's where we'll be. I'm going to apologize ahead of time because my throat is a bit sore, so I may have to stop and cough and might not be able to project as I normally do. But Joshua 22 is where we we find ourselves this morning. I guess there is one other announcement uh, someone wanted me to make. uh, That is, we're looking for people to work as greeters on Sunday mornings. So just stand at the door and greet people as they come in. Welcome them. And so talk to Brady Rideout if you're interested in doing that. Um, We want to just have people stationed there every, every Sunday. Joshua 22, we see something of a worship war. Maybe you've heard of worship wars before. Churches getting divided and bent out of shape over instruments in worship or singing only psalms or only the good old hymns or maybe the young people are trying to bring in some modern songs and the other people are against that or Maybe the the playing of the music is too loud or people are divided about who should be on the music teams. I've never actually run into that kind of issue in a church, but unfortunately we hear of these things. Sometimes church members get bitter about very petty things and start to divide and, and make war over these things. But here in Joshua 22, we have kind of a, a worship war that nearly breaks out, but ultimately is avoided. And it was going to be a literal war, not just arguments and people leaving the church, but tribes were about to take up arms against each other. So there is a serious issue here. But then, as I say, it was avoided. We want to learn from this story. It has much practical application for us even today. First, we see in this passage the issue and inquiry, and then second, the reply and resolution. First of all, verses 10 to 20, the issue and inquiry. Following the honorable discharge of the faithful eastern tribes in verses 1 to 9, we find that these tribes decide to make an altar. They built it, it seems, before they crossed over the Jordan. We know that these tribes were leaving the the western tribes, should put it this way for you all. The western tribes were over here in Canaan. The Jordan River divided them. These eastern tribes were going over to their land. But before they did, they erected this altar. It seems on Canaan's side before they crossed. It says here in verse 10, when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar for the jo- by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size, literally of great appearance. This stood out like a sore thumb, and everyone within reasonable distance would obviously take notice of it, and that they did. We see in verse 11, this news came to all the people, all the people of Israel heard it. Heard it said that, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Now, what is their (coughs) reaction to this altar? 
verse 12 tells us, when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They hear about this altar that people have built. Immediately they're getting together their, their weapons, whatever they had at the time, swords, I, I don't know. But they got all together at Shiloh, this central meeting place, and they were ready to go and lay siege on their brothers, these other tribes in Israel, and attack them and destroy them. Now why is this? We might immediately think this is, seems to be a bit of an overreaction, right? Are these guys maybe just still in battle mode? They've, they've now finished this seven-year-long campaign in Canaan. They've been fighting all along. They've, they've fought all these Canaanites. Now they're, they're just still pumped with adrenaline. They're ready to fight. So the first thing that goes haywire, they're, they're ready to just jump on their brothers now. Having fought off the Canaanites, they're just like a bunch of Wild West gunslingers ready to whip out their pistols if anyone looks at them sideways. Shoot before asking questions. Well, actually, if we understand the background to this and what Israel was thinking, we can actually view their reaction in a positive light. They are actually to be commended for their zeal here, their readiness to deal with this issue. In Deuteronomy 12, there's a strong warning against idolatry and free-for-all worship. The Canaanites who lived in the land before them would worship many gods. Wherever they liked, however they liked, on every high mountain, on the hills, under every green tree, tells us in Deuteronomy 12 too. But the Israelites had one God, Yahweh. They were to worship him alone and worship him in the way that he had directed according to the law of Moses. And it says in that chapter that he himself would choose a place when they came into the land where his name was to dwell, that he himself would inhabit, where they were to worship as a whole nation. Deuteronomy 12, 5 and 11, for instance, speak of that truth. They had been wandering in the wilderness, but they had the tabernacle with them. Yahweh's tabernacle, Yahweh's altar, this dwelling place of God among them. And that's where they were to worship. They were to bring their offerings and sacrifices, the whole people of Israel. And when they got into the land, it was the same. They were to bring their offerings to one place. At first, it was at Shiloh moved to Bethel. Later, God revealed that the place he wanted it to be was Jerusalem. And so all the people had to gather there <coughs> and worship at that altar. As Matthew Henry says, they were to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. They had one tabernacle, and they were to gather there three times a year for their worship. And if any person or, or city would worship other gods or worship according to their own whims, which amounts to worshiping another god, you're creating a god in your own likeness. If you worship him however you want, rather than the way he wants. And if this was to happen in Israel, Deuteronomy 13 tells us that the people were to devote those people to destruction. If one of their brothers went off and started worshiping idols, started 
dragging other people along with him to worship idols, or even a whole city went astray from God into idolatry. They were to devote those people to destruction, even their own brothers, even like they destroyed the Canaanites in the land. And so when Israel heard of another altar being built away from the one tabernacle, an altar that was truly always, they were bent out of shape, and rightly so. They and their brothers, all Israel, had pledged to obey the Lord with all their heart and soul. Even Joshua had just commanded these tribes to be careful to observe everything in the law of Moses. And one of those laws was there was one altar. If the Easterners turned to idolatry, they were to be destroyed. So we see the Western tribes, Westerners we could call them, coming against the Easterners because they knew that a little leaven of idolatry would leaven the whole lump, like a doctor who cuts off the first sign of cancer before it spreads to the rest of the body. They, they were ready to deal with this sin before it spread to the rest of the nation. And so they are to be commended for their zeal here. This was not just an overreaction. Rather, they reacted according to God's word. Yet, though commended for their zeal, they are also to be commended for their prudence. They had the right mix of zeal and knowledge and wisdom. You can have zeal without wisdom or knowledge, and that's no good. You have knowledge without zeal, and that's no good either. We need both light and heat, and they had both. They had wisdom and understanding enough to send a delegation at this point to make an inquiry about what was happening, lest they misunderstand what was going on here and they were rash in coming against these people in war. <coughs> Verses 13 to 15 notes how Phineas, the son of the high priest Eleazar, and ten chiefs from all the tribes went over to the people of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh to see what was going on. Verses 16 to 20 contain their initial speech to the Easterners. They speak very openly about what they think is going on. They condemn the sin here very clearly in verse 16. It says, this says the whole congregation of Yahweh. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? <coughs> So they call this out as a clear act of sin against the Lord, painting it with all its heinousness. They call it a breach of faith. That is infidelity, a violation of their obligation to God. They call it turning away from behind the Lord, literally. They, they were behind the Lord. They were following him faithfully, but then they turned away, it seemed, from following him and went the other way. They call it rebellion. That is an act of revolt, a high-handed rebellion against God. So often, we do not so clearly call out sin, do we? We like to excuse sin and minimize sin. Well, it's just, I, I, I failed. I made a mistake. But it's okay now. God, God forgives me. I slipped up. I fell into sin. 
But here we don't see any of that. They, they paint sin as it really is, as rebellion and infidelity, turning away from the Lord. We also ought to condemn sin in ourselves in this way, see it as it truly is, rebellion against the Most High God, turning away from Him, infidelity to the Lord our God, whom we have covenanted to as if in marriage. They use examples of the past here as well to reinforce the danger of this sin. They mention these two past incidents of Baal at Peor and of Achan. Verse 17 to 18, they mention Peor. They say, have, have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Back in Numbers 25, this incident occurred where at Balaam's instigation, the people of Midian mingled with the Israelites and led them into mass idolatry and immorality. And 24,000 people died of a plague that day because God was angry with, with the whole people. Phineas, actually the same character mentioned here in this chapter, back then in his zeal killed two blatant sinners and staved off God's wrath. But still, many died under the anger of the Lord. And so they bring up this instance as an example, if, if you do this, if you build this altar, if you turn away to idolatry, God may be angry with us, the whole congregation of Israel. Who knows if a, a plague might break out against us. They knew that this sin was not only high-handed rebellion, but that kind of rebellion has consequences. God is wrathful against sin. And they say here that Still, even the effects, consequences of this sin had clung to them. Even yet, we have not cleansed ourselves, they say. This kind of widespread, grievous sin has devastating, long-term effects. The memory of it and shame of it sticks with people. The, the losses, you imagine, family members had died in this plague. Now they were still living with the effects of that. And if God would send a similar plague... How would they stand before his judgment? I think we see here an important principle that we are to be warned by past acts of sin and God's judgment of the past. We, we can look back at Peor. We can look back at Nadab and Abihu. We can look at Ananias and Sapphira and the, the exile of Israel. We see that God demands obedience and he can be grieved and sin has Horrible lasting effects. Sin is dangerous. We need to be warned against it. They also mention Achan. In verse 20. Achan we saw in chapter 7 of Joshua. He took some of the devoted things. And was cursed by God. Devoted to destruction. <coughs> and not only was God angry. With only him. God was angry with the whole congregation of Israel. And it was only as the whole congregation got together and dealt with this sin in their midst that God turned away his righteous anger against them. 
And so Achan and all his family and possessions were destroyed. And the people also suffered loss in war against Ai at that time because of that sin. So the Westerners were concerned that this sin of the Easterners would bring God's wrath against the whole nation. This reminds us also of our collective responsibility. When Jesus speaks to the seven churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, it's interesting to note, he doesn't largely focus on individuals. He, he speaks to churches as churches. We also need to be zealous about dealing with sin in our midst, lest God be grieved and our lampstand is taken away. They knew the severity of this sin. And so they, they pointed it out to them clearly in their speech to the eastern tribes. They pointed out the danger of this sin. But at the same time, even here, in verse 19, in the middle of this speech, they, they also make an offer to help the eastern tribes out of their sin. This is very interesting. They, do, they don't simply rebuke them and leave it at that. There's actual support offered. They're not just pointing their finger, but they're reaching out a hand to help these people out of their potential idolatry. The only reason they could possibly see that the eastern tribes would think to set up an altar was that perhaps they thought their land was unclean and they needed to offer sacrifices to God to cleanse it. They say in verse 19, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into Yahweh's land where Yahweh's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us only do not rebel against Yahweh or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of Yahweh our God and so they're offering help you, you know you don't have to set up this altar why don't you just come over back into our land into Canaan then you can more easily worship with us they offer this other way out rather than allowing their brothers to rebel and make them as rebels. This ought to be our attitude as well when helping others out in sin. As Galatians 6 talks about restoring each other in a spirit of gentleness, not just to condemn, but to draw our brothers out, to bear each other's burdens. There was a pastor I, I knew who would have a young man over at his house during the day so that this young man would not be tempted towards sins that he would commit when he was alone. That's a commitment, giving of himself, giving of his own home to help a brother avoid sin. That's the kind of thing we ought to do in the church. We want our brothers to be restored. We don't want them to be left in idolatry or sin. We give loving rebuke. We, see, we, see, we say things as we see it in our brothers' and sisters' lives. But then we also extend a helping hand in a spirit of gentleness to bear each other's burdens and help each other on the path of sanctification. So overall here, what do we see <clears throat> about these Western tribes? We see a people who are devoted to God zealous about true worship, reasoning frankly with their brothers 
so that they would avoid false worship that dishonors God and grieves him. We see that they loved the one true God. And so they were jealous and zealous when some idolatry came in to replace him. And they loved their brothers as well enough to go and talk to them and draw them out of this idolatry. How might this apply to us here? We don't have altars anymore. We don't have to worship at one specific location. Jesus said in John 4, we don't worship at Samaria or Jerusalem anymore, but by spirit and truth, there's an internal sort of aspect to our worship that it can happen anywhere. But we do have an altar and a place of worship in a sense. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is our altar. The one final sacrifice Jesus himself offered so that we can draw near to God through him. And it's through him and him alone. It's not by any other means. We have this one gospel that we're justified by faith in Christ. And we can worship through him alone. We worship by the spirit of God. There is one God and one altar. One God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Our salvation, our worship comes through Jesus alone. By God's grace through faith. The work of Christ is what enables us to come in with confident access to God's presence. Christ himself called himself the temple of God on earth. Where, his, where God's name was manifested. John 17 verse 6 he says I've, I've manifested your name. God's name was placed on Jesus Christ as his very habitation. He tabernacled among us. God made flesh dwelling with us. God with us. Emmanuel. And he has also placed his name upon the church. We are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. As the gathered church, 1 Peter 2.5 notes that. And so in a similar way, we do have one God and one altar. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4, 3 to 6 says, and we ought to be eager to maintain the unity and purity of our faith, of our worship, of our fellowship in truth and love. So this points really to our need as the church for zeal with regard to Christ and his church, with regard to the gospel, the faith that we have. The one true God, we, we confess Jesus as Lord. And so we follow his word and we're careful to guard that. As we worship together, we seek to worship in the way that God has commanded. At times, churches can swing to opposite extremes with regard to the purity and unity of worship. They're either not concerned about a biblical gospel and biblical worship at all. Or they're overly concerned about things the Bible doesn't even address. First group are lax with regard to false teaching. Letting liberalism and Romanism creep in in place of the true gospel. They let the church be influenced by the world and its culture. 
Biblical worship is replaced by what is pleasing to man. Unrepentant sin is left unchecked in the name of unity and tolerance. That's, that's one ditch we could fall into. But another ditch is getting caught up in the mint and dill and cumin and forgetting the main principles, focusing on things that the Bible doesn't even care about in the New Testament. What we wear, what, what exact artists maybe we sing from, how we appear to others, having the right affiliations. We become little judges, condemning one another rather than seeking to help one another when caught in sin. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. They fought about circumstances of worship rather than zealously maintaining God's word, biblical worship according to his word, and most importantly, the heart of worship, love, mercy, justice, faithfulness. These are the things we ought to be most concerned about as we do seek also to to change all of our worship according to the Bible. A true zeal for Christ, his gospel, and his people mixed in with wisdom and love for our brothers is what we need. Then when issues arise, when sins happen, when breaches of faith occur, we will not simply gloss over them and let them fester like open wounds, nor will we pull out our guns and shoot without looking first, but like the western tribes, we will openly, frankly, reason with those we see sliding into dangerous territory. And we'll be happy, as, as we'll see in a minute, when it's simply a misunderstanding. This is what we see the apostles doing in the New Testament. They were zealous to uphold the gospel and unity and love and biblical worship and discipline in the church because there is one Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And because he loved us, we love him and we seek to obey his word. He's given us direction for how his household would run as the pillar and buttress of the truth. We love him, we love each other. And so we are jealous for his name. We are zealous for the purity and unity of worship. Just like the Puritans back in the 1600s, there were the, these people labeled as Puritans because they were seeking the purity of the church. That is how we are to be. Seeking purification. In the modern day here, the church certainly does need purification, doesn't it? There's much false teaching that has crept into the church, much laxity, even where people are turning away to another gospel, still associate with that and, and fellowship with it. There's blatant violations of God's standards we see in the New Testament about worship. And so we are to be concerned about these things. And we're to love our brothers and, and go to them and speak of these things. Hoping, believing that things will change. But the great thing about this passage is that the western tribes, having this heart of zeal for God and his altar, were also happy to discover that the eastern tribes had exactly the same heart. And this instance, this issue was actually a complete misunderstanding. 
on the part of the Western tribes. We see this in the reply and resolution in verses 21 to 34. We see three things here as the Eastern tribes reply to the Western tribes. First, they confess their allegiance to Yahweh and the truthfulness of their confession. Verses 22 to 23. The mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So they're saying, just like the western tribes, the, the eastern tribes believed that the Lord alone was God and was to be worshipped. You notice how they repeat this title for God. The mighty one God, the Lord, in the ESV, in the Hebrew, it's El Elohim Yahweh. God, God, the Lord, or, or Yahweh, the God of Israel. What are they saying there? We believe in the same God. God, Yahweh is our God. We believe in, in the same creator and Lord, the same one who saved us out of Egypt. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is our God, and we worship him alone. We're confessing that before you. And they also here swear to their own hurt with God as their witness that they did nothing wrong by building the altar. They say he knows and let Israel itself know. God knows what we're doing here. Let all of Israel also know what we're doing. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. What we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So they're making a claim to integrity and they make it all the more serious by saying, basically, you can kill us and, and God himself can take vengeance on us if we actually did what you say. And they would not curse themselves willingly like this if they knew that they did wrong. And so they confess their allegiance to God and, and the truthfulness of their claim here before explaining, this is the second thing here, we see them explain the real motivation for building the altar. Verse 24 and following. And we won't read this in depth here, but essentially they say they did not make this altar for sacrifices, which, which is a bit strange. Usually if you erect an altar, you're going to offer sacrifices on it at that time. But they had some other reason. To all appearance, it looked like they were going to start worshiping at this altar but that actually wasn't why they built it they made it rather as they say as a witness a testimony a remembrance for fear that in time to come because of the distance and geographical division between them and the other tribes their descendants would be prohibited from true worship at Yahweh's altar verse 24 says no but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children 
ceased to worship the Lord. They feared. They had a godly anxiety, as Dale Ralph Davids says, that they would be left out of biblical worship of the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is why they built the replica altar. It, it wasn't to offer sacrifices. It, it was patterned after that altar at Shiloh as a reminder to remind all Israel that there were tribes over this Jordan River that are going to worship with you. We're still the same people, one body, one Lord, one faith. They wanted to uphold the same exact thing as the Westerners were concerned about, the unity and purity of worship. And they were especially concerned about future generations, their own children, and what their worship would look like. They were concerned that their children would also belong to God and continue worshiping Him according to His word. Friends, this should hit home to us, many of us as parents with children in our home. We want to see our children be God's children. We want to see our descendants worshiping God as we have worshiped Him according to His word. And we need to leave a witness to our children that would remind them of our faith that they too would believe in Christ and follow Him and His gospel and His word and be faithful members in their churches. And the best witness that we can leave is our very own lives, their remembrance of how we were in the home, how we led them to the word of God and prayer, how we lived a, a genuine life of faith. Though, though we sinned at times, we were sorry, we apologized, we sought forgiveness, and we did seek to follow the Lord. We did good works. We shared the gospel. That is a powerful witness to our children that they can either accept or reject, but we pray that God would choose them and redeem them just as he has chosen us. There were potential divisions that the Easterners saw ahead of them. This, this Jordan River and the Jordan Valley between them was a great division. If we could just see it now, ridges, sometimes 4,000 feet in places, the river itself swelling in the springtime, this was not an easy journey. And distance can be a real obstacle to a relationship, can it? If your family lives across the country and you speak to them on, on Zoom or phone calls, it's harder to maintain a relationship that way, isn't it? Rather than being close to them, being with them. The eastern tribes knew that there were obstacles and potential divisions ahead, and so they did what they could to guard against those things. We see they had the very same concern as the western tribes. And so thirdly, we see that they satisfied the western tribes with their speech. In all this, they showed their motives and actions to be pure. Indeed, they had the same exact motives of the western tribes. So the reply was good in the eyes of the people. Verse 30, it says it was good in the eyes of Phineas and this congregation of the chiefs. 
Later on in verse 33, it says the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. They were glad to hear of this, that, that they had actually misunderstood. And this also gives us a great principle. Sometimes we do misunderstand people. Sometimes we could accuse them of doing something, but we don't actually know what's going on behind the scenes. We need to go to them, talk to them, ask what they're doing. And then we see their real motivations and what they were really doing. That's important. We need relationships with people. We need knowledge of people if we're to have unity with people, not just to assume what people are doing. But so they're glad when they hear that indeed they were not doing what they thought. And Phineas adds here that in verse 31, he says, Today we know that Yahweh is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against Yahweh. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of Yahweh. He rejoiced that Yahweh was present. God was there to keep his people from stumbling, to keep them blameless before his presence. They were delivered from the wrath of God because there was no sin committed. God was truly with them, preserving their unity and worship. And so, most of all, if we want our purity and unity to be preserved, we also need God himself to be present, to sanctify us and keep us in his name. We also learn that Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war. It says in verse 33, the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God. They blessed God. They praised him. They thanked God that they did not have to go to war with their brothers. They didn't have to divide from them. They didn't want to fight their brothers. They loved them. So they rejoiced that there could be unity and that God's pure worship was upheld. As Psalm 133 celebrates the unity of brothers, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is something to rejoice in because it's God's work. It's that unity produced by the spirit that we are to maintain so diligently how good and pleasant it is and we see here they also when they knew that this issue wasn't an issue anymore they dropped it they spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land how easy would it have been for them even after that conversation to go away and say among themselves do you really think their story was true? Do you really think they built that altar just as a witness? How long will it be really before they're offering sacrifices to Baal again and bringing God's wrath upon us? But no, they, they didn't do that. They didn't gossip. They didn't slander. They didn't accuse. They believed what the other brothers said and they, they dropped it. They spoke no more. We also, when we come to a resolution with brothers and sisters we need to just drop it just just speak no more right not accuse or slander that's the work of the devil the slanderer himself rather we believe all things and hope all things when we come to an agreement with our brothers and sisters speak no more now having satisfied everyone 
we see in the last verse that the eastern tribes called the altar witness. For they said, it, it is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. This is the, the period of this story. The punctuation mark at the end. Yahweh is God. They had the same God. The same Lord. The same altar. They confessed the same God. They worshipped the same God. According to the same word. Just as now the confession that unites the church really is three simple words like it is here. Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. We worship this one Lord, Jesus Christ. And we have one Lord. And so we have one faith, one gospel, one body, the church. And we join together as church members and church associations based on common faith and practice according to God's one and only revealed word in the Holy Bible. Now this is instructive for us. We ought to pray that such purity and unity of worship is upheld forever among ourselves, that we and even our children would forever hold the same gospel, the same truth, the same word, the same Lord God, and worship him in his way to his glory, and that the wider church culture as well would grow into this unity and purity which is so pleasing in God's sight. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, it's uh, a story that happened so long ago, Lord, but has application for us, Lord. And we do pray that you would help us as your people to be one people with one God. Lord, and we would be zealous and diligent to uphold biblical worship. Lord, to be quick to deal with sin and false teaching in our midst. But also, Lord, to celebrate Thank you for the unity that we have in your spirit. Lord, and I do thank you for this church, God, and I thank you for the unity we have, for the one mind that we have to follow your word. Truly, the same heart we see here in this chapter. God, we pray that you would sustain that, Lord, and we would continue reforming and reviving and purifying your church. You would purify your church in this city, other churches, Lord, our associations across this country, Lord, you would come by your spirit and give everyone the same heart, Lord, to be as the Puritans, concerned, zealous about your proper worship, because you alone are our God. Thank you for this one gospel we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, and we rejoice in it, in Jesus' name.